And open your Bible, if you would please, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter uh, 23. One of the challenges of doing the kind of series that we've been doing for the better part of 2018 is that it feels sometimes like we're doing a little bit of a drive-by past some of the most significant passages and, and periods in God's Word. And of course, all of God's Word is important, all of God's Word matters, but there's some places where you get to and, and you just kind of stop and, and wonder to yourself, should we just maybe pause here for a little while and just marinate in, in what's happening here? And um, it dawned on me this past week that uh, we have gone from the birth of Christ to the baptism of Christ to the temptation of Christ, and now today to the death of Christ in the span of four weeks. And uh, that feels kind of quick to me. Uh, at the same time, the main point of this whole series and going from the start of the Bible in January, Lord willing, to the end of the Bible in December, has been to reinforce that the singular story of the Bible is about Jesus. That the Old Testament points to the promise of Jesus and the Gospels point to the person of Jesus and the epistles point to the power of the resurrected Jesus within each of our lives. And I believe that this message that uh, we are going to see today Maybe one of the most important messages in the entire series up to this point, because the goal of today's message is to remind us of what is absolutely foundational to our faith. It's to remind us that if we lose sight of this one thing, then we lose sight of everything. Vince Lombardi was um, one of the greatest football coaches in professional football history, and uh, his very first coaching job in the National Football League was to take a team that was constantly losing and turn them around and make them into a winner. And so the very first time that he had his whole team together, he gathered them all around in a circle around him. And just imagine this short little guy, kind of stocky, standing in the middle of this circle, this massive chunk of humanity around him. These football players who are twice his size and double his weight, and there's this little guy standing in the middle of them, and he looks at these professional football players, and he holds up a football, and he says to them, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would take them out onto the football field, and he would say, these are the boundary lines, and if you go on that side of the boundary line, then you're out of bounds, and the play stops. And, and he says, that is our end zone, and, and that's the other end zone, and our goal is to keep the other team from getting the ball into our end zone, and our goal is to get the ball into the other team's end zone, and that's how you win the game. And, and can you imagine that? Like a, a guy who has never coached a football game in his life, standing in a circle of professional football players who are among the very best in the world at what they do at that particular point, and he is talking to them about the absolute basics of the game. And yet any good coach will tell you that uh, the key to victory is your commitment to keep the main thing the main thing. And I'd like to suggest to you today that that's not only true in sports. In fact, I think it's true for us as believers in Jesus Christ as well, that, that our desire to experience victory within our lives, not just personally, but our desire to experience victory in our lives corporately together as a church will come in our commitment to keep the main thing the main thing. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is the cross. And this is the main thing. And we have to keep this the main thing. This right here, the cross where Jesus Christ died, this is the focal point of Christianity. 
This is where the love of God was most clearly expressed. This is where the power and the glory of God is most clearly seen. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no life. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We have no salvation. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, can I remind you that we have no Christianity. And so it is incumbent upon us as believers in Jesus Christ. It is imperative for us as the church of Jesus Christ in this place to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the cross where Christ died for us, that's the main thing. So if I can, just over these next few minutes, by the grace of God, can I just pull you away for a few seconds from the distractions of your life? Can I just gently by God's grace, pull you away from the things that you brought to church with you this morning that feel so hard and so heavy upon you, whether it's your your family relationships or your finances or your health or your kids or whatever you have going on in your life right now. Can I just, by God's grace, just gently pull you away from those distractions and encourage you in this time to take whatever those distractions are in your life and hold them up against the light of the cross of Jesus Christ? Because we need to remember that everything starts there. Everything starts at the cross of Jesus Christ because without the cross, we have no life. And I just remind you this morning that we must never lose sight of the central place of the cross of Jesus Christ. So with our Bibles open this morning to Luke 23, I want to show you three reasons why that must be so. Three reasons why we must never lose sight of the central place of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then from those three reasons, I pray it will propel us into one response. So three reasons and one response. Here's the first reason. Number one, we must never lose sight of the central place of the cross of Jesus Christ because this is where Jesus pays the price for us. Luke 23, let's begin reading at verse 18. But they all cried out together, the crowds cried out together, away with this man, talking about Jesus here, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt, deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is not the first time that Jesus has been before Pilate. He has already stood before both Pilate and Herod to this point, and neither of them have found Jesus guilty of any crimes. Keep in mind that Pilate and Herod are not viewing this circumstance at all right now through a spiritual lens. They don't see the spiritual significance behind what's going on here. They only see that Jesus has committed no criminal offense. But we read this, We look at this and we see that this is not just that Jesus is not guilty of a crime against the law of man. It's that Jesus is not guilty of any crime against the law of God. Jesus is totally innocent. He is completely innocent. This is our Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. 
Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is perfect. There is no sin in him. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. In him was all the fullness of God pleased to dwell. He is the only light in this dark and broken world. This is our Jesus, and he is completely and totally innocent, not just of any crimes committed against the law of man, but he is completely and totally innocent and righteous before the holy God. Like, this is our Jesus. Just listen to how the Bible describes Jesus. You can jot these references down in your notes. They'll be up on the screen for you as well. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Listen, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Like, this is our Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Listen, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Then you go down to chapter 2, verse 22. It says, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is our Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. This is our Jesus. He is completely and totally innocent. Like over and over again, the pages of the Bible are singing the song of the holiness and the perfection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. So we need to understand right now that as Jesus is walking to the cross, he is not going there to pay for a crime that he committed because he committed no crime, nor is he going there to die for his own sins because there is no sin in him. Instead, he is going to the cross to die for our sins. And we look at that and we can't believe that. We shouldn't be able to believe that. How is it that an innocent man is about to die for guilty people? It doesn't make any sense. Notice here, the the people, the religious leaders, they're crying out to release a prisoner and to crucify Jesus. Notice the words that Luke uses here in this passage to describe the intensity of their cries. Verse 18, they cried out together. Verse 21, but they kept shouting. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Like all of those words there, just in that little section alone, carry the same idea, the same word picture of a woman who is screaming through the labor pains of giving birth to her child. And like, we know what that's like, right? Like, sometimes you don't understand a word of what mom is saying in that moment. All you know is that it's super intense. And and notice the result of their intense cries at the end of verse 23. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate takes a known criminal and releases him and takes Jesus, who everyone knows to be innocent, and crucifies him. And if we're not careful, we can very easily miss what just happened. Because our tendency is to look at this and to look at other circumstances like it and scream at the injustice of it. And on some level, we would be right to do that, to scream at the injustice of what's taking place. Like, why is an innocent man dying for guilty people? doesn't make any sense and it's even more troubling when those in charge cave into the demands of the people around him but do you see what's happening here 
all of a sudden, even with how out of control all of this looks to be, the cross instantly becomes a reminder that God is always in control. That we look at this circumstance, all we can see at this point is an innocent man going to die for guilty people. And it just concrete in our mind, in our heart, that God has a plan. God's got a plan. Teaches us that God uses even the most troubling and confusing circumstances of our lives to bring about a greater purpose that in that particular moment we simply cannot see. I was talking to somebody in our church just a week or so ago. And they have circumstances going on in their life right now that I'm almost positive there's not a single one of us in the room would envy what they're going through. Because it's like one thing after another, after another, after another, after another just keeps piling up. And when one thing finally gets done, it's like something else just kind of grows right out of that. And it's almost like an avalanche that's just racing down the mountain towards them. They can see it coming at them, but it doesn't matter what they try to do. They just can't stop it just powerless to stop it. And the beautiful thing about talking to them about the circumstances that they're going through is that they keep saying, I know that God is in this even if I don't understand what he's doing right now. And the the beautiful thing about that is that I know this family well enough to know that that's not just the spiritual thing that you say when you're talking to the pastor. I know them better than that, that this is a deep-rooted conviction of their heart. I can't understand what God is doing right now, but I know that God has a purpose in this. You could be sitting here right now and and you're like, man, I've got my own avalanche that's racing down the mountain right at me and I'm powerless to stop it. You've got all these questions. Why the disease? Why the ongoing medical complications? Why won't my kids talk to me? Why are things going like this? I try and I try and I try and I try and I just can't seem to change this part of my life. Why is nothing changing for me? Sometimes even we step back a little bit further and we think to ourselves, why in the world would anyone walk into a synagogue and kill 11 people? Why do we look around and there's so much injustice and so much violence and so much hatred and animosity? Why, 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 why? And loved ones, can I just encourage us in this moment that when we take the focus off of ourselves, That when we take our direct focus off of the circumstances around us and we turn our attention to the cross of Jesus Christ, that the cross then becomes an instant reminder for us that no matter how out of control our life feels, that God has a plan. Like, what are you going through right now? Like, think about this. What is it in your life that is weighing so heavy and so hard on you right now? Your health concerns, your financial concerns, your job problems, your relationships. Like, what is it, that that thing that feels like a backpack that you wear with you everywhere you go, and it's so hard and it's so heavy, and you would love nothing more than just to take that backpack and rip it off your shoulders, drop it to the ground, walk away, and never think about it again? Like, what is it that you're carrying right now? And can I just remind you that in the midst of that, even when it feels like that thing is so out of control in your life that God has a plan. God has a plan for you somewhere in the midst of that when you don't know what's going on, when you don't know how much longer it's going to last, God is in control of it. And can I just remind you that when we take our attention off of ourselves, off of the direct circumstances going on around us, and we begin to hold up that problem in our life in light of the finished work of Christ on the cross, it reminds us instantly that we can trust the heart of God even when we can't see the hand of God. He's got a plan. He loves you. The cross teaches us that God always 
has a perfect plan, even when we can't see what the plan is. It makes no sense that an innocent man would die for guilty people. And yet we look at the cross and we see that Jesus paid the price for us and we think, why would he do that? Like, Why would he do that? And that leads us to the next point, number two. Because the cross is where Jesus proves his love for us. We must never lose sight of the central place of the cross because the cross is where Jesus proves his love for us. So verse 26 says that there's this big group of people that are following Jesus as he carries his cross to the place of his crucifixion. And notice now verse 28. Verse 28 says, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the, to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? These are strange things for Jesus to say. Israel always looked on the ability to have children as a blessing and it was always a curse for them to be in a spot that was so bad that they would wish for the mountains to fall on them and crush them. And yet Jesus says there's coming a day when those are the things that they're going to want. Like why? Like why would they want that? See, Jesus is warning them here. He's warning them. He's saying to them in advance that if this is how they treat me when I am innocent... Just think of how they're going to treat a guilty nation who deserves judgment. The coming judgment will be so bad that the people will be crying for anything to relieve them from the judgment to come, but it won't come. That's why he says, verse 31, the nation of Israel was like a tree with green wood while Jesus was on the earth. In other words, that should have been a time of unparalleled blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity for the people, but instead they rejected Jesus. And so instead of being a tree with green wood that could have had so much fruitfulness and so much blessing, they became a tree with dry wood that was fit only for the fire of judgment. I can't stress this enough. Like Jesus loves us so much. He loves you so much. He loves these people who are following him to his cross so much. Like he is about to die on the cross. He's only moments from dying on the cross. And in that moment, he is literally thinking about the spiritual well-being of the people who are right around him. Like just put yourself for a minute in Jesus' position. Like obviously we're not him, right? It's not the same for us. But just imagine that you have been wrongly convicted of a crime that you did not commit. You've been sentenced to die because of that. And you spend all of your final moments trying to prove your innocence. Like if that were you and me carrying our cross to the place of our crucifixion, we would be fighting and screaming and yelling and kicking. We would die in our effort not to die. And yet here's Jesus. He's hauling his own cross up the mount of crucifixion. And he is still thinking about the people that he came to save. Like, praise the Lord. What an amazing, loving Savior. The story continues in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. 
And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh man, there is so much packed into that section. But just notice this. Notice how many times the different groups of people tell Jesus to save himself. Verse 35, the rulers scoff at him, save yourself. Verses 36 and 37, right after that, the soldiers mock him and say, save yourself. Verse 39, the criminals rail at him and one of them shouts, save yourself and us. I mean, they're all crying out for Jesus to physically save himself and to save them. But, but just imagine, just try and pull yourself back from this story for a second and And imagine that you've never actually read this story in the Bible before. And imagine you're reading it, and then you get to the end of reading it, and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe, maybe after all of that, Jesus will save himself. But then you read the end of the story, and you realize that Jesus saves one of the criminals who is beside him. He doesn't physically save him, but he spiritually saves him. He saves the sinner. And don't miss the irony here. Don't miss the spiritual truth that is just coming out of this passage. Jesus saves the sinner by not saving himself. Like, praise the Lord. What a Savior. He saves the sinner by not saving himself. There's more here. Verse 34, Jesus is already hanging on the cross. He looks down at the Roman soldiers who have put him there, and and he says to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like Jesus loves so perfectly that his supernatural reflex is to forgive the sinner. Later, the criminals are hanging on crosses beside him. It's interesting, both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel also tell of this moment in Jesus' life. And both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell of how both criminals, when they were hung up beside Jesus, they both started railing at Jesus. Both started mocking him and insulting him and and railing at Jesus to not only save himself but to save them as well. But, But then somewhere along the way, through the course of events, one of those criminals hanging on the cross beside Jesus, he just goes quiet. He goes dark. He he stops insulting Jesus. He stops mocking him because somewhere along the way in the course of events, he comes to realize who Jesus truly is. And then in verse 42 here, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds in verse 43, he says, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just imagine. Just imagine that. This guy hanging on the cross beside Jesus. He knows his life is over. He knows, he feels the desperation of that moment. And he just says, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Please, don't forget me. 
Like, can you think back in your life when, when all of a sudden the cross of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished there for you, can you remember that time in your life where it all became so clear? Can you remember that moment where the desperation was so deep and, and you just cry out, Jesus, remember me. Like, Jesus, I realize what you've accomplished on the cross for me. I realize your body broken for me, your blood shed for me. I realize you've taken the full penalty of my sin upon yourself, that you've endured the justice and the wrath of God against my sin. You've done that in my place for me because you love me, and you realize the desperation of that moment, and you just cry out, Jesus, remember me. You're going through a circumstance in your life and you don't know what to do. Jesus, remember me. Like this guy is hanging on the cross at the very end of his life and he is begging Jesus for mercy. And even in his dying moments, don't miss this, even in his dying moments, Jesus abundantly gives mercy to the sinner. Like this is one of the clearest pictures in all of the Bible that salvation is by grace alone and not by works one of the clearest pictures in all of the Bible, that it doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how hard you work, that you cannot save yourself. One of the clearest pictures in all of the Bible that the only way for us to be saved is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. One of the clearest pictures in all of the Bible that Jesus saves the sinner by not saving himself. And when you throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, one of the results is that we get to be with him in paradise. And what makes paradise paradise is that we get to be with Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Amen. You can clap for that. You can clap for Jesus all day long. So listen, don't miss these two pictures, okay? Verses 26 to 31, a picture of judgment. Jesus is basically saying to the people, saying to these women who have followed him to his cross, he's saying to them, don't cry for me. He's saying, cry for yourselves. Cry for your nation. Cry for the future generations. But then right after that, there's this beautiful picture of salvation. Two pictures there. And I wonder, how often have we cried out to God for our nation? Like I wonder, how often have we cried out to God for future generations in our country? How frequently do we cry out to God for our country where it seems our leaders are making more and more bold and blatant decisions that are disobedient to God? I wonder, how frequently do we cry out for the people who live next door to us or the people in the office next to ours or the classmates who sit in the desk beside us? How often do we cry out to God for our children and for our grandchildren, for our nieces and our nephews that we know are straying far from the Lord. Like, does it grieve us so deeply to the core of who we are that we cry out to God to have mercy upon us? Jesus, remember us. It's one thing for Jesus to warn of a judgment to come. It's another thing for him to do what happens next. Number three, we must never lose sight of the central place of the cross because this is where Jesus takes the judgment for us. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, for the Jews, that's noon to 3 p.m. It's when the sun should have been shining the brightest and the hottest. But now, all of a sudden, the land has gone completely dark. It's reminiscent of what happened when God sent the plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the Exodus. The ninth plague was darkness that covered the entire land, total darkness so deep that the people could feel it. They could hold their hand in front of their face and they couldn't even see it. And this darkness was over the land for three complete days. The plague of darkness was God's last warning to Pharaoh before the angel of death came with the final plague, which was the plague, uh, the death of the firstborn. And in this final plague, only those protected by the shed blood of the Passover lamb would be delivered from God's wrath. So the people go through plague after plague after plague after plague until judgment is handed down through the death of the firstborn. And so now we come to Luke 23, and darkness sweeps over the entire land as a sign of God's terrifying judgment against sin. Darkness this time for three hours, not three days, and during that time, Christ is on the cross. And as Christ is on the cross taking the judgment for our sin, this is God's announcement to a sinful world that judgment is being handed down and his firstborn son is being sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb. But at the very same time, in the pronouncement of judgment, there is also an announcement of deliverance. Because there is salvation for anyone who will place themselves under the shed blood of the lamb. So see this, like so deep is this deliverance, but so great is this victory because as Jesus breathes his last breath, the Bible says here that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Like the sacrifice of Jesus has done in one instant what thousands of years of animal sacrifices through the history of Israel could never do. It opened a way for sinful people to be in God's presence. The penalty for our sin has been paid in full and it has made a way for us to be in the presence of God forever. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need to keep the cross the main thing. That's our source of life, our source of hope, our source of salvation. We must never lose sight of the central place of the cross because in those final moments on the cross, listen, loved ones, Jesus took hell for us. Like, all of our sins and all of the punishment and all of the judgment against our sins in that moment as he hangs on that cross, poured out on him. So let's be clear about something. The darkness here in this passage in Luke 23, this is not a sign of God's absence. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is a strong sign of God's presence. Because on the Son, the Father pours out the fullness of his wrath the fullness of his judgment and his fury against our sin, and he puts all of it on the one and only pure and holy and righteous one who alone could be the sacrifice for our sins. So let's understand that God is very present in that moment. 
And consequently then, hell is not simply the place where unbelievers are separated from God for eternity. Hell is the place where unbelievers will be eternally separated from God's comforting presence, but they will never be separated from his punishing presence. Like, just let that sink in. And realize that because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, that he's rescued us from ever having to go to the place where all we will experience is God's punishing presence. Like rejoice in that, loved ones. Be sober-minded about that. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, like why... Where are you going with this? Why are, you, why are you talking about this? Listen, I'm talking about this because we need to see the depth of the deliverance that Christ accomplished on the cross for us. We need to see how deep this goes. We need to see the implications that this has to have on our lives. Listen, he took the hell that we deserved and he is giving us the heaven that we don't deserve. Like, loved ones, seriously, when are we going to get to the place where we understand that the treasures of this life are not found in a bigger bank account or a bigger house or a nicer car or a longer vacation or a better retirement that is not found in those things? The treasure of our life, the joy of our existence is what Christ has done for us in our place. Like, when are we going to come to the place of realizing that Jesus is the pearl of great price, that he is the treasure hidden in the field, And that it's incumbent upon us to go and sell everything that we have so that we can buy the field, so that we can get the treasure that's hidden there, which is Jesus himself. we got to see this. He took the hell that we deserve, and he's giving us the heaven that we don't deserve. So when this deliverance has been accomplished, Jesus cries out with his very last breath, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Loved ones, see the glory and the power of your Savior as he dies on the cross for you. He is in complete control to the very end. And that is part of what makes him worthy of trusting every single part of our life to him. Like in some sense, this is is true for us. No matter what comes for us, no matter how hard our life gets, the call upon us is to entrust ourselves to God and to his perfect purposes, even in our death. To entrust ourselves to him and to his perfect purposes, even in those final moments of our lives. Maybe you don't think too much about that. You don't think about that day. You don't think too much about that moment when you will slip from this life and into eternity. But can I just take this opportunity to remind you that there is coming a day for every single person in this room when we will slip from this life and into eternity. And there's coming a moment for every single person in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ when we will slip from this life and into the presence of our God forever. And our Savior shows us right here that God is worthy to be trusted even with that moment even in our death. Like for some of you, this may be something that you're thinking about pretty often right now. Some medical problems, there's some health challenges that have made this a very real issue for you. Maybe 
Maybe it's not something that you yourself are going through, but you're walking with somebody who's close to you that you love very much, for whom this is a very real issue, and they have concerns, they have questions, they have worries, and, and I just want you to be comforted so much right now. Just, just listen to this, that because of what Christ has accomplished for you and for me on the cross, that he will hold you fast to the very end. Because of what he has done for you, because he has died for you to purchase your eternal life, he will hold you fast to the very end. Listen, listen, I just want you to be so encouraged by this right now. Just look up here. Your eternity does not depend on your ability to hold on to Jesus. Your eternity depends on Jesus' promise to hold on to you. That is why we need the cross. And that is why we must keep the cross central to everything that we do, to everything we are, everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. It comes back to what Christ has done for us. He is worthy to be worshiped, even in our final breath, which I pray then just leads us to this one response. Number four, we need not fear in laying down our lives for Jesus. If he is worthy to be trusted, even to the final moment of our lives, even in our final breath, no matter when that may come, no matter how that may come, then we need not fear in laying down our lives for Jesus Christ. First, by giving ourselves up for him. Notice here, verse 50. And there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Notice here that Joseph went against the tide of popular opinion. When everyone else was ready to convict Jesus of crimes that he did not commit, Joseph did not go with them. Joseph stood on the side of Jesus Christ. And then a short while later, he comes out of the shadows and declares his all-in allegiance for Jesus by making sure that Jesus gets the proper burial that he deserves. It's no surprise that by this particular point, Jesus is hated by many people. And now we fast forward more than 2,000 years and Jesus is still hated by many people today. There's going to be times where you find yourself to be the only one in your classroom who loves Jesus. You find yourself to be the only one in your office who loves Jesus. You find yourself to be the only one on your team who loves Jesus. You might even be the only one or maybe one of only a few within your family who loves Jesus. I was just talking to someone in our church this week, just a couple of days ago. He was telling me of how he was talking to his in-laws about what it means to be born again. And having the conversation of what it means to have new life in Jesus Christ. And, and he's talking to them and, and someone in his family, one of his in-laws, just got so upset by the fact that he would not stop talking about what it means to be born again and to live your life for Jesus. That his in-law got up, got in his face, started telling him this, raising his voice. And then he walked out of the room and went and sat in his car for a little while later just to cool off because he couldn't take it anymore. He didn't want people telling him that you have to be born again. Listen, part of what we mean when we say that we are laying our lives down for Jesus, we are saying that we are giving up our desire to be liked by them because we love Jesus, even when we love those people so much who respond like that. 
See, the problem here is that we're never going to be able to lay our lives down in our own strength. Right? Like, we know that, right? If it was left up to us in our own flesh, we might sacrifice something when it's easy, maybe. But the reality is, we will almost never do that when we are staring down the tonsils of someone that we love who is screaming their face off at us because they're tired of us telling them about what it means to be born again. Which is why, loved ones, that we need Jesus. It's why we need to look to Jesus. It's why we need to go to the cross. It's why we must in our personal, individual relationship with God, but also in the corporate life of this church, we must keep the cross the main thing. The only way that we are going to lay down our lives for him is through the strength of him who laid down his life for us. So we lay down our lives for Jesus by giving ourselves up for him, and then, notice this as well, by rightly remembering what he has done. Verse 54, finally, says this. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. They returned to the place of burial. They took care of him and remembered what had been done them. The way that we remember what has been done for us is through communion. Our servers are going to come forward right now and in the life of the church as those who look upon the cross and see that Jesus has paid the price for us and Jesus has proved his love for us and Jesus has taken the punishment for us. We now remember these things. We remember what Christ has done for us. And, and we remember these things not only with appreciation, but we remember them with anticipation. We remember with appreciation all that Christ has done for us, all that we've talked about this morning, that Jesus Christ alone, through his death in our place, has saved us from God's punishment for our sins. And that becomes a reality for us when we acknowledge our sinfulness before the holy God and we repent of our sins and we surrender our lives to him in faith so that we are born again in Jesus Christ and we have this new life that only Jesus can give us because of what he's done for us on the cross. So we remember with appreciation all that Christ has done for us, but we also remember with anticipation that he is coming again for all of those who belong to him. That with this opportunity right now to take this bread and this cup, which symbolize the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that with this opportunity comes for us the privilege of proclaiming the saving power of his death until he comes again. 